You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 32. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand up, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are the witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. We now pray that what we don't have, that you would give us, that what we don't know, that you would teach us, and who we are not, that you would now make us. For the glory of Christ our King, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. I'm glad to be here with you. Seriously, after a week like this, there is nothing better that we can all do, like in the entire universe, than to do exactly what we are doing right now. So it's good to see you. Uh, well, while the options uh, at the presidential level weren't what many Americans were hoping to get to choose between uh, this year, I still, even this year, just love Election Day. Love it. Uh, like, I don't know that I, while I keep a close eye on politics throughout the year, I don't know that I would consider myself like a political junkie. Uh, but that day, Tuesday, uh, is a day that I love, even though that day has now turned, kind of turned into many days. It wasn't election day, but election season or a week or something. But it's not just the celebration of our democratic process as Americans that I love, but I, I love like the theater and the uncertainty of it all. It's like the best elements of why I like sports. 
Uh, like when someone is talking and then gets interrupted with a breaking news, like CNN is now ready to call Vermont. And like, yes, Vermont, love Vermont on that day of once every four years. Uh, and while I went to bed very late on Tuesday night, it was uh, pretty clear from much earlier in the evening that we wouldn't know anything definitively for a while. And yet, this week has not only shown us for the first time, but perhaps reinforced that politics is much more than just reality TV or competition on TV or something. For many, it is really about power. It's about getting power or about keeping power. It's about getting the right people elected or the right people re-elected. If this scenario plays out, if my candidate or tribe then will get to keep power, but if the alternative scenario, which is actually a nightmare scenario, plays out, my candidate or my tribe will lose power. And perhaps if that happens, maybe not even perhaps, I'm convinced that uh, the end of the American experiment is nigh upon us, doom, right? Now, unlike some historians or sociologists who understand or interpret all society, all of culture, all of history as a struggle for power, I think that most humans are actually much more complex than that, with a whole host of varying and competing motivations. But there is some truth to the reality that we all desire some level of power. Like, I cannot wait to graduate from high school get out of my parents' house, where my parents or my teachers can't tell me what to do any longer, or I can't wait to get that promotion so my manager can't tell me what to do any longer. Like, even in the sports teams that we follow, like, is my team bigger, stronger, faster, more skilled than the opponent? And the interesting phenomenon of like, using the word we when talking about uh, our sports teams that we watch on TV. There's an identification, a longing to belong to the powerful, to the successful. And so Acts 5 is about a lot of things, but I think at its heart, it's really about power. Who has ultimate authority? So a question that I'd like to hang our thoughts on tonight and then beat up from multiple angles throughout this text is this, is where do I find power? From where does power come from? How does the power that I find and grab onto actually reveal and display itself in my life? And so we're going to think about this, this question, where do I find power, uh, in dividing Acts 5, 12 through 42 into three sections. Uh, a sandwich of power, uh, thinking through a powerful display and then a powerless opposition, and then a powerful submission. So there's much more to this chapter than what Sandeep read, um, some before and some after of what uh, I asked him to read for us tonight, but beginning in verse 12, fresh off the heels of a really, really severe moment in the first days of the church, we thought about two weeks ago, the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, where we considered the holiness of God that is good and right, and that Jesus did not merely come to just bring forgiveness of sins, but that his people might be able to live their lives uh, not just as they were living before with just a little Jesus sprinkled on top, but that God would create a new temple, the place in which his people would 
be the, the, the new temple, the place of his presence that he indwells by his spirit and then transforms from within. And if we want a God of the power of the miracles and a God of the power of creating a people of sacrificial generosity and the like, uh, we should not be surprised when that God actually does act in power. But despite this very real moment of severity, the, the holiness and the power of God is not, at its heart, a power of condemnation, but it is a power of invitation, of security, of assurance. And so the apostles once again go out in verses 12 through 16, and they are healing people, many signs and wonders. And then maybe hearkening back to what Jesus told them in John 14, that they would do even greater things than he had in his earthly ministry, whereas one woman in Jesus's ministry was healed by Jesus by merely touching the hem of his robe. People here in Acts 5 are being healed by merely falling under Peter's shadow. But as Jesus promised that he would in John 14, it is Jesus who is actually the one doing the healing through his apostles. They are now doing greater things than what Jesus did in his earthly ministry because now, precisely now, Jesus is actually ascended at the right hand of the Father. He is exalted over all of creation. He is far above sickness and death. And in this moment in history and through these deputies of his kingdom, he is now creating a new people. He is now going about a new creation, a new genesis of pushing back and even reversing the curse of sin and death supernaturally affirming and proving the apostles preaching about himself through their healing ministry. And verse 16 tells us that even people from the town surrounding Jerusalem are coming in to hear and be healed. The gospel of power is just now beginning to do what Jesus said it would do in chapter 1, moving out from Jerusalem and into the surrounding region of Judea. Before, in just a couple more chapters, it will then explode to Samaria and then to the rest of the world. And so, Right off the bat, we have a powerful display, a display of the power of Jesus of Nazareth, the risen Christ over heaven and earth, affirming and flowing through his people. But now, secondly, in response to that powerful display, we then see a powerless opposition. In riffing off of one commentator that I read this week, imagine that you are an extremely trained and well-educated classical musician you play in a, a, a big city's Philharmonic symphony, and for decades, people have come to hear you and your compatriots uh, play. You are well-respected. You are even revered as perhaps the greatest musician in the entire city, the greatest musical act in town. But then slowly, uh, your, your show, it starts to stop selling out. It starts with just a Saturday night where there's a, a couple of empty seats in the back. That, like, that's weird. That's never happened. We've sold out for years and then just a couple of empty seats then becomes 10 empty seats. And then the next night it's 25 empty seats. And then 100 seats are empty. What is going on? And so at intermission, you walk outside and you hear it. An electric guitar. And you follow the sound of the roar of the crowd and you get to the mass of humanity. What once was filling the Philharmonic Symphony now is just a mass of people in a park. A rock and roll band is stealing, stealing your crowds. And then what's worse, the guys up on stage, they have long hair. And they're young. There is no way that they have the knowledge and the expertise that you have over your instrument or over the theory of music. But the people love it. Gullible idiots. 
Now this illustration isn't a great one. Classical music musicians are not always uh, religious leaders that are trying to uh, desperately hold on to their power. There are many nights of the week that I would much rather listen to Haydn or Chopin than Led Zeppelin or the White Stripes. But I think it's a decent, decent way of understanding what's going on because read verse 17. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now this kind of thing happens in all kinds of industries all the time where there is like a disruption of a new market that gets introduced. Like Airbnb blew up the hotel industry or the taxi industry is barely hanging on with the advent of Uber or with Lyft. And like the hotel and taxi industry tried but failed to do, some industries are actually able to just annihilate their disruptive opponents. With enough money, with enough laws or force, if you're big and powerful enough, you can almost make any problem go away. And that's what these religious leaders are trying to do. But the gospel ain't Uber. And the gospel of the kingdom of Christ is not Airbnb. The pronouncement that Jesus has died for sins, that he has risen in victory, and that he is the king of the universe and over all creation, including our small lives, is not to be stopped. He is creating all things new. He is desiring and even demanding our loyalty, our faith, and our love for our own joy, for our own good, for the good of our neighbor and for the world. And again, if all of that is true, then trying to shut that down or stop that up is like trying to just put a finger or another finger or your toes or your nose into the mounting pressure of the dam that is about to explode. It is a powerless opposition. But the leaders don't go straight to the nuclear option to try to shut this thing down, which would be like kill and then begin to persecute the entire movement of these new followers of Jesus. They're smart. Like doing that might drum up sympathy for the cause, might backfire in their face. So they just try to take out and silence the leaders. Like history is full of that move, isn't it? Trying to cut off the head of the snake, they think. But the apostles aren't the head. And the church isn't a snake. It's a bad analogy, I guess. But the apostles aren't the head of the snake, are they? Christ the King is. And he has risen and exalted. But they arrest the apostles and they put them in prison. But during the night, an angel opens the doors. No, no prison cell can keep them contained, the power of the gospel contained. This angel tells them to go right back to the temple where they came from, where they were arrested the night before and began preaching again. And then hilariously, the next morning when the leaders are just standing there in an empty cell, an empty cell just looking around, they're like, what, what just happened? I thought they were here. They're confused. Someone comes in and says that the apostles are right back at the same place where they were arrested last night, and they're doing it again. And all I could think of about this scene was my great Dane, Knox. Stay with me for just a second. Knox is a wonderful dog. He really is. But when he drinks water, he immediately becomes like this trail, even a fire hydrant of slobber. Like, if you've seen Beethoven from the early 90s, it's just seriously just, that, that's what happens uh, within the next two to three minutes after he drinks anything. So maybe we're standing in the kitchen, and then he trots into the kitchen, and he's like this, like shoestrings of slobber hanging to the, to the ground. And so we stiff-arm him, stiff-arm him right out the door so that he can drip off outside. But the only problem is, is that there's another door into the house around the corner. And Knox is like a, veloc a velociraptor in that he can actually open the door. 
Um, and so uh, you stiff arm him out the back door, he trots around, and then three seconds later, he's right back at your hip, and then he slobbers you. You're like, this guy. Again, terrible analogy. The apostles are not a snake or a dog, and the gospel is not slobber. But those in charge of the house are super annoyed by something that they can't get rid of. They keep stiff-arming it out, they think, but it just comes right back. They are powerless to stop it. And so, the next day, they go back to the temple courts again and arrest the apostles again. Only this time, it's time to really confront them. This time, they bring them before the temple council, the same place where Peter and John were in chapter 4, and they tell them this in verse 28. We strictly charged you not to teach, them, teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, we're just, whereas just a couple of months ago, these same leaders assured Pilate, the Roman governor, that any potential guilt of blood would be on them. They were okay with that in their condemning of Jesus. They were ready for it. Only now, they're making excuses. They're making excuses why their opposition to Jesus, the high king of heaven and earth, really wasn't that big of a deal. You're trying to make it a bigger deal than it actually was, you apostles. But they want it stopped because if the crowds do find them to have committed something really blameworthy, to admit wrong, to admit weakness, well, they are convinced that any admission of weakness, of wrong, will be the ultimate loss of their theological and political power. Both the Sadducees in the beginning of the chapter, the more like live and let live progressives of the day, as well as the Pharisees at the end of the chapter, the more strict fundamentalists of the day. They're both angry and against what's going on. I'm reminded of what I recently read someone uh, just on election day this morning, where she quipped, it is always humbling and sobering to me on days like this to recall that in the Gospels, the only thing that the religious left and the religious right really agreed on is that Jesus should be put to death. In other words, Jesus comes to dismantle competing systems of power of all kinds, that stand in opposition to his kindness and to his grace, to his holiness and to his power, to his authority over all things. But they are entrenched in their opposition. And yet, while they are entrenched in their opposition, you are not a first century Jew. And yet, left to ourselves, we are just as opposed to Christ as King and Savior as these leaders were. This is not some sort of like anti-Semitic text. It equally confronts all humans who remain in opposition to Christ, who trust in themselves. Assuming that Jesus has no claim on your life with fingers in the dam or with fingers in your ears, wishing that he didn't have any claim on your life. Ignoring him altogether or minimizing him to the margins of your heart, only trusting him and obeying him when it is convenient or when you feel like it or when you like it. Actually, you have become the highest authority in the universe. But let me just ask you, and now you know yourself better than I do, how trustworthy are you to make the rules of right and wrong for the universe? Even the, the rules of right and wrong for your own life. I know myself, and I definitely need a higher power, a higher authority, a higher authority of goodness and of wisdom, 
of kindness and of forgiveness and love over me. I don't even keep my own rules for my life. I must have another. But just like these religious leaders, this kind of opposition is powerless in the reality of the resurrected Christ, and the apostles knew it. And so, what makes these apostles Christians? Who are Christians? Christians are those who say that Christ is king, and they really mean it. Depending on him for his power, and depending on him for his grace and love, what we profess in our faith this evening from Colossians 1, that he has transferred us from a domain of darkness to a domain of light, doesn't mean that we never still actually participate in the darkness, but that he is making us more and more people of the light, slowly and patiently and compassionately. And yet, Christians are people who submit to Christ as king. So lastly, in the face of a powerless opposition, these apostles respond with a powerful witness. They don't let these leaders slink out of their rightful condemnation for their opposition and their rejection of Jesus, and they definitely will not be bullied into shutting up about Jesus. And so after telling them to stop preaching Christ, Peter and the apostles in verse 29 answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and as Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They realize that any power, any religious or political authority, actually is a delegated power, is a derivative authority. And if a delegated civil power stands in opposition to God, then followers of Jesus must obey the ultimate power behind the power. The power of God that stands behind the power of man. Like my kids should always obey a babysitter because I have, for a time, delegated my authority to the babysitter. They are to obey the babysitter as though they are obeying me because I have delegated my parental authority. But if the babysitter is telling my kids to obey her in such a way that is actually causing them to disobey me, they should disobey the babysitter. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, before the apostles, these apostles will not obey an order that political authorities are giving them if the order causes their disobedience to God. Come what may, whatever the consequences. So let's address the elephant in the room. Acts 5.29 has been one of the most quoted verses on the entire internet in the past seven or eight months. God commands his people to gather. So governments or governors cannot tell their people, God's people, not to gather. God commands his people to sing. Governments and governors are telling their people not to sing. Should we invoke Acts 5.29 and collectively and congregationally engage in civil disobedience, seemingly following in the footsteps of the apostles or following in the footsteps of my children as they disobey the babysitter that teaches them to obey in such a way that disobeys me? Here's my short answer. No. Now, caveat, 
99% uh, of the things that I usually say up here on the stage behind this pulpit uh, will find unanimous agreement amongst the four other pastors here. While all of us agree generally, though, about what I'm about to say, not all five of us will find agreement on every word. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, and sometimes, uh, me or Kyle or Clint or whoever might preach uh, may not speak 100% for everyone. Uh, but as God has given us the job and the role to speak in what we think that we are interpreting and, and understanding from the Bible, it's okay for us to speak with some conviction. And yet, I'm giving you the caveat that while we uh, are not divided on this, we, we love, we find unity, we are loving to uh, humbly and mutually submit to one another, nevertheless, there's some energetic back and forth from time to time, and that's all right. Uh, from time to time, and uh, perhaps uh, maybe even in the future, we might change our minds on some of these things. We're trying our best to get them right. Now, that said, I did already preach a sermon on June 1st from 1 Peter 2 on honoring the emperor, so I'm not going to regurgitate everything that I said about submitting to uh, governing authorities, but that might be worth a listen or a re-listen. But the first thing that we need to acknowledge is that while certainly verses and texts like Acts 5.29 absolutely exist, and we need to have those uh, in our, um, what's the word, arsenal of, of biblical texts to go to, Nevertheless, so do other verses and texts, like 1 Peter 2, like Romans 13, about honoring and submitting to authority. In Titus 3, Paul tells Titus to remind them, remind the church that you are pastoring, Titus, remind them, Titus, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. So the first thing that we must say is that while there is certainly a verse like this, we must obey God rather than men, it certainly cannot mean that we must never obey men. Submission and obedience is hard for humans, but God is telling us throughout the scriptures that to obey to delegated authority is actually to obey divine authority. But yet it is especially hard for us as Americans. And perhaps this is like the very first time in our lifetime that we've had to really ever reckon with this. Perhaps we always thought of ourselves as good model citizens, generally submissive people, but then again, we've never really been asked by governing authorities to do something that we really don't want to do. So I can submit to and obey with orders that I agree with, but true and humble submission means to actually submit to and obey orders that I do not agree with. But it's one thing to just disagree. I actually, humbly here, I actually don't think that there's a place for any Christian to like willfully not wear a mask. I think it's like a black and white thing. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Remind them to be obedient, Paul says to, to Titus. But it's another thing if you are convinced that your submission to a governing authority is actually causing you to disobey God. Masks might be inconvenient, but that's all they really are, an inconvenience. But what about singing? Is this actually a scenario in which it is like my children being told to 
disobey me by actually obeying the babysitter. Now, the word sing appears over 400 times in the Bible. I just want to make that very clear. Get all this out on the table, because this is really important. 50 times of those times where we're talking about singing in the Bible, 50 times, these are straight-up commands that you should sing. Christians should sing, both individually and corporately. And Ligon Duncan is totally right that the command to sing is the most frequently repeated command in the entire Bible. Singing is one of the most important ways to, Colossians 3, allow the word of Christ to to dwell deeply in us as we sing to God, as we sing to ourselves, as we sing to one another. Ordinarily, Christians should be a singing people as what is overflowing out of our heart. And even as a practice of forming and shaping desire in our heart. Like, I've lost count of the times in my life when I have showed up to a gathering of the church and I have actually not felt great and warm passion and affection for the Lord. The worship wouldn't have been heartfelt, so perhaps I might be tempted to just not sing at all. But it is through my own singing. It is through hearing of the singing of other saints around me that I am actually reminded of what is true. My affection is rekindled. My gaze is lifted. So all of that is true. But I said, ordinarily, Christians should be a singing people because these are not ordinary times. And unlike the temple's leadership, the temple leadership's command to the apostles to shut their mouths to keep people from being infected by the gospel, an infection that would bring life, our leadership is commanding us to shut our mouths to keep people from being infected by a virus, something that would actually bring death. In other words, our government is doing exactly what God delegates governments to do, to establish peace and to protect life. Now, while this is the first time in any of our lifetimes that we might have ever had to have thought about these things, we are absolutely not the first Christians to. Men and women in Europe, especially in the Reformed camp of the 16th and 17th centuries that many of us admire, they were saying the same things that I'm saying now. Richard Baxter, writing in the 1650s, says this, If the magistrate, for a greater good, forbids church assemblies in a time of pestilence, disease, in a time of assault of enemies, or fire, or the like necessity, it is a duty to obey him. Baxter differentiates between divine commands and divine prohibitions, things that God tells us to do and things that God prohibits us from doing. So one commentator says that when God forbids adultery— Track with me on this. Track with me on this logic. When God forbids adultery, there is no conceivable scenario. There is no subsequent human command that might come that would ever justify disobeying that prohibition. Like never, 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 no matter if it's a time of pandemic or of economic loss or whatever, never, never, never commit adultery. Are we clear on that? The clearness of a divine prohibition? But when God commands us, positively commands us to do things, say to give to the needy, we are not commanded to be giving to the needy at every moment of our existence. God says give to the poor. We do not just every second of our life always be giving away money. Indeed, that would be impossible. Sometimes we ought not to give if we need to preserve very limited resources that God gives us for other God-given responsibilities. 
So if we are commanded by the magistrate to do that which God forbids, the kind of thing like go commit adultery, we must obey God rather than men. If the governor tells us to stop preaching the gospel altogether for theological reasons, if the governor tells us to stop preaching the whole gospel of repentance and faith, we must disobey and we will disobey and we might go to prison for it, come what may. But if we are commanded by God to generally be a singing people, just like we are commanded to, by God to generally be a generous, giving to the poor people. If we are generally commanded to be a singing people, and then the governor commands us to temporarily not be a singing people, Baxter and many others writing in the time of plague would say that we ought to submit to the government in good conscience, that we are not in a very specific way being disobedient unto the Lord. Because in fact, the governor has not forbidden us to ever sing. We can actually obey most of the singing commands in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, in the whole Bible, by ourselves in the car, around our kitchen tables with family or with roommates. Will we lose out on the congregational benefits and actually not be able to both hear and express ourselves as we like? Yeah, and I hate it. I hate it. I cannot wait to both sing loudly in this room and to hear all of you singing in this room. Like, be it tomorrow, please God. I hate not singing with you all. But might we actually learn something for the rest of our lives about singing, about worship, that it is actually much more than just singing through an extended time of fasting? Might we still be a singing people from the worship that is spilling out of our hearts, even if we're humming? Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah, but what if actually singing is not really that dangerous? Like we're wearing masks, we're staying distance, we're doing temp checks, come on! If we disagree with the mandates, or if we think the mandates have gone on for too long, we're tired of the mandates, we think that the mandates are an overreach. Can we, should we, ignore the mandates, disobey the mandates? Well, in addition to reminding you that just because that you have read lots of blog posts, in addition to reminding you, shoot, maybe you have actually read real-life peer-reviewed academic and medical journals and studies, that does not mean that you are now a comprehensive public health or epidemiological expert. But, even if you are, perhaps you have a PhD in epidemiology, you are an expert, and you actually still, as a Christian, disagree with the mandates coming from Santa Fe. Even if you are, I want to bring up Romans 13 once again, that we don't so quickly just assume that we should only follow the mandates that we agree with. I think you need to be 100% convinced that your civil disobedience is actually what God wants from you. Like, not 99% sure, not 99.9% .9 sure that civil disobedience is what God wants from you. Because Paul says this in Romans 13 too. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Acts 5 exists, but Romans 13 too exists also. 
So individually, we are left with our own consciences if we will obey every suggestion from the governor in the same way that we will submit to or obey every required mandate. And, in fact, you might have noticed, we are not walking around with like decibel readers to see if you are singing under your mask. Nor, and I'm giving you this release clause here, nor if we heard you singing would we make you stop. But, so this is your own conscience in deciding what is right before the Lord, and we don't want to bind that conscience in a way that we are not sure of. Remember, I told you, I think we're trying to get this right, but we're not, we're not 100% sure. But congregationally, despite the tension, the tension of the command to be a singing people, and in the, the same time, the, the tension to submit to and obey our authorities, we are going to lead you in what we think is actually obedience unto the Lord. That is, submitting to our civil authorities. We aren't doing this. We aren't telling you not to sing, uh, even though we think that it is causing you to disobey God. But this is actually the way for a season that we think it is right to obey God. That we are, again, a crass, terrible illustration, but that we are actually obeying the babysitter in such a way that the parent has delegated his rightful authority. And again, I hope you'll pray for us as we lead this church in these kinds of decisions and postures. Urge you to be patient with us. We may be getting this wrong. I don't think we are, but we're so thankful for the unity of our church that this issue hasn't become a divisive thing. Uh, I have so many friends who are pastoring churches or just members of churches around the country in which, um, even in this city and state, in which this is a hot-button divisive issue, and I'm so thankful for the unity that we enjoy. But the last thing I'll say about this is that I wonder how much of this obedience to God stuff is actually because we're, we're actually just Americans. Like maybe it doesn't help that we all have friends and family who live in different states or they are members of churches in town that actually are not uh, following any singing bands. But I know of and I follow many pastors from all over Europe and England where bans on singing are just a commonplace and expected norm in the life of their culture. And while certainly there are certainly some churches that I'm unaware of, but certainly there are some European churches who are defying those orders, the ones that I know of aren't even asking the question. Of course they won't sing if the government is asking them to temporarily forego it for the life and the good health of their neighbor. Is it possible that our American demand, even our willingness to fight, fight for our rights, that thing that is just so part of our American DNA is what is actually more of what is shaping our posture, our action, and our reaction to these things. Just food for thought. Now, now that I've properly stepped in it, uh, let's get back to the text, to our theme of power. Our rights are not ultimate because we trust in the God of all power. We trust in the God of all kings, of all governors, of all presidents, of all religious leaders, which is the exact same wise counsel that a sober-minded Pharisee named Gamaliel gives at the end of this chapter. Gamaliel gives wise advice, but I'm, I think it's cynical advice. I don't think it's like full of faith advice, 
But he advises the temple leadership to just leave these new Christians alone. His thinking goes that, like, how many other flash-in-the-pan movements have we had? Even religious movements that just come and go all the time. Gamaliel mentions two other religious leaders that seemed like they were, at the time, taking Jerusalem by storm, Theodos and Judas. But these two guys, in their movements and their followers, they came and went, and now everyone has almost already forgot about, forgotten about them. He's probably insinuating that, like, seriously, guys, in 20 or 30 years, we'll all be sitting around having a laugh and say, hey, remember, remember that time? Remember that Jesus of Nazareth guy? What were his, uh, what were his, what were his lead disciples' name? They're like, uh, Peter and John or something, right? That was, that was a funny time for a couple of months. Gamaliel, though, is looking at these ragtag, uneducated northerners, seeing what appears to be power in them. There's thousands of people who have begun to follow them. But in making sure that, he's saying, in making sure that we aren't actually against what God is for, we should probably give them and this movement just a little bit of time. Just to see, see what God might be doing with them. But at the same time, they're so weak. Just look at them. So let's give them a little beating on their way out to really remind them who's in charge, to really remind them who has the power. Now, a little beating to them, to the religious leaders, but probably not so little for the apostles. We're not told exactly what kind of beating. Maybe a whipped back, maybe a few few broken ribs, a few broken noses. But the apostles are not intimidated by the supposed power of these leaders. These religious and political leaders who are hanging on to the very last vestige of of power despite the writing being clearly on the wall that God has given authority to another. That Jesus Christ who suffered and died is now the high king and priest and ruling over all, offering peace and forgiveness to all. And no futile attempts and grasps at holding on to power can take his now given authority from him. The apostles know it, and they rejoice. Break my nose. I don't care. I belong to Jesus. The power of man, the power of grasping after more power, power opposed to Jesus, what does that kind of power produce? Jealousy, anger, fear, violence. My world is falling apart, so I have to hold on to what I have and willing to do whatever it takes to keep it. But the power of Christ, the power secured for us in the death of death that is now seated at the right hand of the Father, what does it produce in his people? Peace, courage, conviction, hope, suffering, but suffering with joy. But because this is actual power, real and actual power, the power of Christ will continue to shape and grow his people throughout the book of Acts and beyond. And I pray that the power of Christ is actually doing the same in us. As we submit to and are motivated by and fueled by the power of God, even patiently waiting in a time of extended fasting because we wait in hope, because he is the God of all power, delegating other good and right power, even if you disagree with it, disagreeing with it, being willing to give the benefit of the doubt and having grace as we do as his people, people full of joy, rejoicing as they go. 
This is a hard text for me this week, even preaching submission, preaching humility, preaching joy to myself. These weeks, these months are dragging on. And it seems like this will never go away and things will never be back to normal. And yeah, I don't know if you've been reading the news lately, but it's not going to for a good while. Uh, So let's dig in. Let's settle in with joy and with hope and with humility as we go. Shaped and formed by the power of God. Through Christ, by his spirit, as his people, under his word. And let's do it all again next week. Let me ask God for his help as we go. God, we are thankful that you are our ultimate authority, that you have not left us with no authority, that we are actually not our highest authority, what untrustworthy authority we actually are. So we are thankful that you do delegate ruling governments to establish peace, to protect life on our behalf. And God, we pray for wisdom. We pray for discernment and wisdom uh, for our governor, for our mayor, for our elected and delegated Congress in Santa Fe as they make state-specific rules and regulations and mandates. We pray for the next administration to presidential, uh, federal administration to make wise and discerning decisions and mandates that would promote life, promote human flourishing, promote peace. God, we pray for wisdom. We are all so feeble-minded, even our elected leaders. So we pray for wisdom for us and for them. We pray that you would make us a humble and joyful people, trusting in your power and not our own, trusting in your power and not the power of governments or governors or presidents. But Lord Jesus, because you are sitting at the helm of the cosmos, we can walk in joy and in peace. We're thankful for this reality and for this truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.